Let's go. You're listening to Making Data Simple, where we make the world of data effortless, relevant, and yes, even fun. Hey, podcasters, Al Martin here. Welcome back to Making Data Simple. Hope everybody is healthy. We always like feedback. Please take a moment to give us feedback on the podcast, rate us wherever you may be, and always send an email to almartintalksdata at gmail.com. We listen. If you want to be on the podcast or you have different ideas, we'd love to hear from you. Today, I have a gentleman by the name of Nick Caldwell. He's the chief product officer at Looker, or now Google. We'll talk about that in a bit. But he's spent two years at Reddit. He's been 13 years at Microsoft. I see you as a pretty strong leader, and I'll tell you why in just a second. Nick, thank you for being on the podcast. Thanks a ton. I really appreciate the invite and you know, looking forward to a fun discussion about data. Happy to be here with a fellow data nerd. Yes, absolutely. You got the right person. <laughs> so first of all, like I started the podcast, I gotta say, you're healthy, everybody good, you're working at home, you're not breaking any rules, are you? You know, I'm doing the best I can. And, you know, as a manager, it has been kind of a struggle to react. Like nothing could really prepare you for this exact situation. It, it's not really work from home. It's, it's working from home amidst a crisis, you know, try to figure out how to accommodate not just getting work done, but also the changes to mental health and the, the dynamics of people with uh, children that they need to take care of. It's, you know, stretched a lot of folks who are in uh, management capacities to learn a lot really quickly. Uh, while dealing with our own stuff. You know, we have to remember that you know, we, we take care of our people before the product. So you know, we were talking before we got on the podcast, we were kind of joking, which you know, I'm empathetic to, as always, anybody that may have health issues, but those that don't have health issues, we may go crazy from <laughs> staying by ourselves you know, as long as we have. So any tips that you have for the listeners in terms of what you've learned? For me, one, a lot of uh, yoga. Two, I, I'm giving my wife a lot of space. <laughs> You're a smart man. <laughs> we got to get through this. We got to come out on the other side uh, as one as one team. So my theory on this is that you know, five, ten years, probably closer to five, they're going to tell us how crazy we are, one way or another. I mean, and that by that I mean on either side. In other words, it's either crazy that we didn't get out in front of this. They're going to do studies, or they're going to say that hey, we went. Overboard, it's just, I don't think there's a win ultimately in how they're going to dissect this afterwards. No, I mean, it's one of, it's definitely going to be a situation where, you know, hindsight is 2020, of course. But I, I think there will be some lasting changes that I'm looking oh, forward yes. to. I think the, not, not to, definitely try, not trying to put a positive spin on the situation, but, but it is accelerating trends in technology that were happening anyway. So the move to remote uh, work has been one of the, the biggest ones. And, and I think that things like people using Zoom calls or Microsoft Teams or so forth will, will persist. I think that um, the ability for people to have you know, work from anywhere uh, as a part of their company culture is something we needed for a, a very long time. Uh, and then on the, on the health front, I, I'm seeing uh, in, in places, you know, people are really rethinking our approach to data as it pertains to health and being able to use the, that sort of information uh, to protect our country and the people of the world. So you have to be a, an optimist uh, and um, in these sorts of situations. And I think that will come out of it someday, hopefully soon. Well, it's kind of like a, a war with a, an enemy you can't see. And, and usually out of wars, you know, the, if there's anything that good comes about it is a lot of innovation. Exactly. I'm with you on the, on the privacy 
That's going to be interesting. I like, I don't know, something like 12 weeks ago, perfect timing, I guess. I started, I took on a role as the, the vice president of data and AI expert labs, which is services. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was before a pandemic hit. And yeah, when I first started, it was like, we couldn't log into VPNs. Hey, that was secure, et cetera. But you know, we're starting to figure that out. Yeah. And we're, we're able to work remotely pretty damn well. In fact, almost in 99% of all cases, but that mm-hmm. wasn't the case when we started this. And I was having conversations with IT leaders like even three months ago about them wanting to continue to own their own on-premise IT services. And I want to you know, continue running my own on-prem data stores. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you imagine like trying to run on-premise IT infrastructure <laughs> at this exact moment in time? I think that we're going to see just a massive push toward infrastructure modernization. You're also starting to see, you know, with examples of, uh, you know, like Zoom or, or other companies who have had to a- adapt in terms of just unprecedented levels of traffic on their cloud services. You're starting to see just a validation uh, that you know you can run extremely large-scale businesses with stability uh, in the cloud, and it's happening. You know this trend would have eventually come around to it, but now we're right there in front of us. This is forcing the modernization and adoption of new infrastructure and new approaches to work. It is certainly accelerating and modernizing technology. It is polarizing too. It's like on one side, there's panic. There's the herd mentality because we're all social. Everybody goes buy toilet paper, which I still cannot understand. (laughs) It's like, you know, there's this normalcy bias. I always think in terms of AI now where we tend to think, oh, everything's fine. I mean, and this has happened over history. Like if you looked at the town of Pompeii, you probably know the ending, but uh, first century AD when, uh, what was it? Mount uh, Vesuvius. Vesuvius. 2,000 people, they had time to get out, but uh, they were watching. It hadn't really caused a problem for as long as we can remember. We're good. Tell me a little <laughs> bit about your uh, your background. I want to get a sense of it. started my you know career in computing, building uh, video games. Uh, specifically, was fascinated with machine learning, AI, natural language. You know, fast forward several years, I ended up uh, at Microsoft uh, working on uh, a natural language product called Info Navigator. Um, some people who are in the BI space might recognize this, but this was essentially mm-hmm. a, a natural language interface uh, for data. You could you know, talk to your business data sets. Hey, who's the top selling rep in uh, Europe except for Mary and Sue? You know, it would give you back the answer in a form of a, a data visualization. That led me into my next big uh, BI project, which was uh, the founding team of, of Power BI. Power BI is Microsoft's entry into the business intelligence modernization space. And then my career took a bit of a turn from there. I'd, at this point, I'd been at Microsoft for uh, about 15 years, and oh. I decided to do something totally different and uh, ended up going to Reddit uh, as the VP of engineering, which was just a wild experience. If you don't know what Reddit is, it's a site where we try and monetize cat pictures. And it turns out to be one of the most... Uh, <laughs> did it work? <laughs> it seemed to have worked. We're doing pretty well. We did pretty well. Is a site that is one of the largest data stores uh, in the world. I think it's the fifth, uh, fifth or sixth most traffic site in the world. And I learned so much there about modern approaches to data relative to what I had been doing uh, at Microsoft. I learned lots of other things too, but this was a particularly valuable experience that I then took to my next role at Looker. Jumping back into the business intelligence space, Looker is uh, also in the BI space, but it uses a very, very different approach uh, that you know incorporates, I think, the 
best of what's current and bleeding edge uh, and happening in data engineering, as well as offering kind of new sorts of data experiences that go beyond uh, traditional BI dashboards. So I was at Looker for about a year and a half before we got acquired by Google. So uh, now I'm a, a Googler. We're trying to figure out how to, you know, take the company and integrate it into this uh, much larger Google ecosystem. So lots of fun, exciting things happening uh, for Looker right now. That acquisition was fairly recent, was it not? It just closed. So we've only officially been Googlers for, I think, about a month and a half. Just picked up our badge. I've only been in a Google building once <laughs> just to pick up the badge. And then all the buildings have been uh, closed due to coronavirus. But uh, let's see, the, um, I think the uh, initial announcement was sometime uh, late last year. So I want to get into a little bit of each of those areas. But before I do, I'm, I'm always intrigued. And it sounds like you have a relationship with data like me. I'm a data guy. But I'm also intrigued with leadership. And when I went, I looked at your website and you've got a lot of videos, even more so. I mean, I don't know if I saw one on data. It was more about leadership. Sounds like you're really into leadership. Is technology a necessary evil to, to get you towards leadership? <laughs> Is that your uh, passion? No, I mean, I do love uh, data. I've been working in base my, my whole life effectively. I think that the thing is, though... Um, I'm an organizational leader at heart. Put another way, I'm a manager. So I think the best managers are ones who find ways to bring the best out of their uh, employees, one. And then two, find a way to take that combination of unique skills and, and best apply it to some business need. You know, a, a good manager is constantly trying to find the intersection between what the business needs and what would be, you know, fulfilling and inspiring to their employees. I just, in my career building organizations where that sort of process happens in a continuous cycle is actually what really makes me excited. But I've worked on a lot of products in my career. I think Looker is awesome. Reddit's awesome. But over time, what I've learned is that people matter much more than products in the long run. So I get my most enjoyment and, and most fulfillment out of um, that aspect of the work, figuring out how to build organizations that feel like you know, people can get their best work done that feel fulfilling and, of course, accomplish, you know, something great from a product perspective. Well, I think I know exactly what you mean, because a lot of times when I do presentations or otherwise, I start with my brand and my brand is AI and still early on in the onset of AI. But I would say, hey, look, I'm a data guy. I'm a client and people guy. And I think my brand's leadership. The first two I've earned, the last one you always continue and yeah. must, you know, continually earn. Right. You never finished. And that's kind of the challenge. But so when I went out there, I looked at a few of your pitches, which were intriguing. And if you don't mind, I want to start there a little bit. We'll get back to data. But I'm intrigued sure. by the what you said. You if you're OK with that. No, go for it. You had a couple topics, executive interviews, how leaders make new leaders, building trust with a product team, triple the team size without losing control. All interesting topics. And there were many more. Let me hit a couple of these. Like you started off with the executive interviews. And I thought it was interesting because I did turn it on. First thing you jump into, you say, hey, you don't get jobs on LinkedIn. <laughs> yeah. that, was, that was like your first statement. And then you went in to talk about how important blogging and social is, which I totally agree. Would you mind talking a little bit about the executive interview topic, but also those topics as well? That exec interview video was part of a series I put together for my nonprofit, which is called uh, Color Code. The intent of that nonprofit is to try and get more people of color 
into technology and specifically into executive uh, leadership positions. Um, you know, I've I've been in tech a long time, and you know, just to be blunt, there there are not a lot of other black people in the in the C-suite. Why is that? You've done the study. You're, I mean, awesome nonprofit. I had that as a question, but we'll start with that now too. I wouldn't want to oversimplify an extremely complex problem, but one specific reason that video was intended to address is access to networks. When I say you don't get exec roles on LinkedIn, you know, it, it means that if you're looking for an executive position like VP of engineering or VP of product or, or something of that nature, those sorts of opportunities tend to come to you via people that you know. You know, if you're a person of color and you're operating a system where you may not have access to that sort of network mm-hmm. or those sorts of people, then you have kind of a, an inherent uh, disadvantage when it comes to, to getting into those roles. So the, the video is all about trying to break down that specific barrier because it turns out like uh, for these types of, of roles, knowing a handful of people, particularly within the, in the Bay Area, can give you access to all of those opportunities. The, the secondary aspect uh, you asked about there, which was about your, your public brand and, and your, um, your public persona and so forth. This has to do, I, I think, with how I view people generating their own luck, for back, lack of a better word, right? If you have a brand for yourself, like you mentioned leadership and, and so forth, if, if that becomes your public persona, you will increasingly find that opportunities will come to you as opposed to uh, you know you having to constantly hunt uh, those opportunities out, particularly for engineers, you know in our early careers, understand how much value you get in the long run from developing this sort of public uh, persona. I know when I was a young engineer, I thought I could just code my way to, to solve any problem, uh, <laughs> and you know over time I've come to appreciate that a lot goes into managing your career, managing your company, etc. It's it's much more complex. That part of the presentation was about telling people that a small investment in uh, managing your public persona, the blogging or, or active Twitter account or publishing your personal projects or any of these, these things, if you do it with regular enough rhythm and persistence, you will find that you over time develop a public brand and having that public brand can lead you to opportunities that you wouldn't have otherwise had access to. That's what the the spirit and intent of that video was. I thought it was good. I also like your advice and I firmly believe in it to blog frequently to promote that brand. I got a lot of people that I'm mentoring and they say, look, I got nothing to blog about. I said, are you kidding me? What'd you do last week? It's easy. Yeah, I tell people it's like you'd be surprised. Like anything that you learn during the week, you, there's you know a hundred or a thousand people who would be interested in that. You, you may not realize it, but you can get very, very uh, valuable content together simply by talking about your your day or what you did or what you learned in the week or who you met. And over time, like if you do that enough, your personality, your your skill set, that all of that stuff start, starts to emerge over time. But the, the key thing is you have to invest uh, in it and do it with some regularity. I think that's where most people fall off. It's one of those things that's uh, easy to talk about, but hard to maintain. I don't have to tell you, I guess you're doing this, this podcast, right? So yeah. you, you probably know that a lot goes into keeping the rigor up, you know? Well, that, well, that's one reason, honestly, I did the podcast because, you know, then it's every week. I've got to get it out every week. You can't let up. Once you let up, people are going to quit listening because you've got to be regular, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Uh, so I'm with you. I also think there's some sanity that you get from writing things down, doing these blog posts. Oh, totally. One of the videos I have up is about 
you know, how I quickly uh, drove some change within Looker's product organization. This is mm-hmm. an extraordinarily complex body of, of work I had to do. And I was able to distill that down into a very crisp and, and clean presentation. So, you know, the act of teaching other people also makes you a better leader. So it, it's a bit of a two-way street. You're doing well, because one thing I also do when I'm mentoring is I Google the name of somebody and see if they come in the top of the list and uh, you do well. Uh, the problem I have is there's a lot of Al Martins out there. So I got a baseball player to compete with. I've got like, there's an evangelist or something. I, I don't know. Oh no, I've got to beat the baseball player. That's too bad, man. <laughs> That's my goal. I've got to get above the baseball player. I don't know how to do that, but I'll figure it out. Just a couple other topics that if you could expand sure, upon it would sure. be great, like building trust with the product team, how leaders make new leaders, Building trust with the product team was about an experience I had here at Looker uh, when I first joined. And, you know, I walked into a situation where uh, the product organization did not have a a predictable uh, roadmap, right? And if you're running product and engineering, uh, particularly for an enterprise company, it matters a lot uh, that you be able to tell your customers, the field and other stakeholders with some level of accuracy, you know, within three months, for example, what's going to ship and maybe six months out, you know, with less accuracy, but you still have to have some sort of reliable, you know, roadmap that you can use so that the field can talk to customers and, and so forth and so on. That presentation was about how to A, repair the relationship and then B, build the sort of communication channels between product and the field that would be necessary to continue a, a healthy ongoing relationship. And uh, maybe one of the, the best examples uh, that I brought to bear there was um, one of the things we did at, at Looker in the first month was we created a field plus product forum where uh, we would show up and the only agenda on the on the meeting was to have people in the field just give us their concerns with product. I mean, just anything they wanted to complain about, just come in, tell us what the problems were. And we did that. Uh, we pulled people from sales, marketing, you know, all over the place into a room and then they just let them rail on us. And it was very painful. But one thing that came out of it was it turns out if you bring all the people who are complaining about you into a, a room and have them do it at the same time, they start to feel bad for you and it actually builds yes. up empathy. <laughs> so, right. And by, by a couple sessions of this, they were like, wow, you know, Nick, I didn't realize you guys were dealing with all of these different stakeholders. And, you know, the, the flames kind of died down a little bit and we could start to have a more, you know, kind of productive, like, well, let's work together and build a system that will allow us to, uh, uh, to work together going forward. Product organization, the field, we attend each other's offsites. It's, it's, a, it's a much healthier place to be. So I, I'm, I'm really proud of what we accomplished. The leaders make new leaders another topic that I'm, I'm really passionate about. And, uh, and it goes back to what we were, we were discussing earlier. I really think uh, the job of a great leader is to turn around and once you've made it, figure out how to, to create new leaders. And that talk is about different frameworks and tools that I've picked up uh, over the years to address that concern. And it comes down to eliminating uh, fear giving people uh, opportunity and then allowing them to fail in some sense if, if things don't work out. And I try and get really concrete and provide very specific managerial tools. I'll, I'll give one example uh, just briefly because I know you asked for only two minutes. One example is what I call the blue flame. The blue part of the fire is the hottest. What we're trying to do as managers is get the hottest output out of everyone who works for us. So the blue flame chart is, uh, imagine a 
a Venn diagram. On one side, it's all of the things that the business needs. It's all of the upcoming roadmap priorities. It's you know things that customers are asking for. It's the strategic direction from your, your boss, et cetera. On the other side of the Venn diagram is things that are intrinsic motivators to your employees, you know, technologies that they want to learn about or people that they want to work with or all the things that would make them super excited to come into work. And then the intersection of those two things is what I call the blue flame. So this is a tool that you can use as a manager during your discussions, your one-on-ones to try and figure out, is every person in your organization in the optimal place to utilize their talents to meet whatever uh, the business uh, actually needs? So that's a fun video. I encourage you guys to check it out. It's um, It's got a couple other great tools and some stories in there about World War II. It's a, it's a good one. That's great. Thank you. Going back, I know that when some of our listeners listen to part of what you said earlier, talking about having a roadmap, giving clients an expectation of what's going to be delivered. I guarantee inevitably somebody's out there going to say, oh, that's the waterfall model and that you alleviated the concept of agile. Can you hit that real quick? Because I know that that's not true. <laughs> yeah, I actually worked in a company that had the real waterfall model and it's um, not that. <laughs> so yes. Just briefly, like when I was at Microsoft for the first couple of years of my career, I used Waterfall and planning cycles during Waterfall were literally <laughs> a quarter long. You would plan for three months. That's not what I'm talking about. Uh, right. a, a roadmap is uh, something that can easily be attached onto any agile process. Uh, it's simply the idea that you can tell your customers with some relative predictability what is going to come down the pipe in the next, you know, pick whatever period. But, you know, generally I never lo- go longer than a year within three months months needs to be uh, fairly accurate. And, uh, you know, in terms of how you incorporate that into to any agile process, most teams who are using, uh, you know, Kanban or Scrum are already doing the work required to cultivate a backlog, which would allow them some level of three month out predictability. And in terms of getting to the next six months, you know, you, you can kind of work with your field and product people to essentially like, as long as your backlog is prioritized, you you can usually get the three to six month accuracy. Beyond that, you're really talking about strategy. There's folks who I think who run longer cycles, like longer shipping cycles who might disagree with me. That's what I think people get confused sometimes. You still have to have a roadmap. You still have to set expectations with the client community or ecosystem. And that still means you can you know, body agile yeah. requirements can evolve, et cetera. The other We're, thing on asking your clients, I'm 100% behind you there as well. I know Henry Ford said something like, if he would have asked people what they wanted, he would have had faster horses. But look, <laughs> yeah. the best way to go and see and get the brutal truth is just have a candid discussion with your clients and they'll tell you the cold, hard truth. And the interesting thing is, to your point, I agree, they do have some empathy after that and they become your best clients. Exactly. A little candor goes a long way, particularly in uh, enterprise, like candor without ego. Uh, you know, I think with, with Looker, one important approach we use is we have a, a definite opinion on, on our tool and where it sits in the market, but we're always cautious not to, to bash our, our competitors. I mean, everyone's got their own different approach to how they're going to solve these challenges associated with data and BI. And we try and just make sure that we're, we're candid about what we're good at. We're candid about what we're, we're not good at, but we keep the you know, ego out of the picture. You know? All right. So let's get back into the data. Are you a data guy? Do you consider yourself a data guy? I presume so, because you've been in data all your career, <laughs> right? Like me. 
I consider myself a data guy. It's always risky though. I've been managing so long that I can sometimes get myself into trouble. But I've <laughs> spent, spent certainly most of my career working either in BI or uh, or machine learning. So the cool thing is for me about data is I've always kind of been a data guy. Yes, I've been in machine learning. It when I first started in data, data was not like it is today though. It's like, hey, you know, I often say it's like two-phase commits for banks, ATMs, boring. But now it's like, it's like the oil of the world. Everybody <laughs> exactly. wants it. Everybody's using it. Everybody's trying to get it. Everybody's trying to steal it. It's finally the golden age of data. I've been yeah. waiting for this. I was telling someone this morning that we're no longer in a world where you have to convince people that data matters. I remember 10 years ago trying to convince people that machine learning was important. Uh, I mean, mm-hmm. or if you think about it, like 10 years ago, I, I know this might blow people's mind, but like you didn't have growth teams. People would ask like, what's a data engineer? And today <laughs> you've got like quantitative market. You have whole jobs who like, literally only exist because data has become such uh, an important part of the fabric of a business. So like quantitative marketers and ops and revenue analysts, I mean, all of these things rely on trustworthy, you know, effectively near real time, or even in some cases, predictive data to get their jobs done in a way that didn't exist. 10 years ago, it was like, if you could get a dashboard or a SQL query to consistently run, you'd be pretty happy. And nowadays it's much more uh, toward operational use cases of data that are really driving the business, which is amazing for data people. It means that we're coming down out of these ivory towers and finding real ways to get data into the hands of everyone within an organization in a way that helps them get their work done. Well, it sounds like you have a ton of experience in both Red Hat and Microsoft around analytics, but let's start with Looker to make sure we hit that one hard. What is so unique about the way Looker looks at data? Looker, in essence, is a platform for building data experience. A lot of uh, our customers think we're a BI tool. We do have a great BI tool, but the better way to think about Looker is we allow you to connect to all of your corporate data sources, You know, your stuff in a data lake, stuff in your SaaS applications, your relational data stores. We allow you to map all of that data into a semantic layer. And we have a technology called LookML, uh, which allows mm-hmm. you to do this. And then... Once you've constructed that... Sorry to interrupt, but does LookML, is that essentially the new uh, SQL? It's like a easier to use version of SQL. It has all the power of SQL, but is a little bit easier to author. And it's tailored at allowing you to quickly create the sort of data sets you might expect from a BI workload. So quickly defining dimensions and, and key business metrics, uh, et cetera, is much faster to do in uh, in the LookML language versus writing raw SQL or using other approaches. So it, it rapidly accelerates being able to get to those sort of business data sets. I mean, why is it so different? SQL is super powerful and can get yeah. really, really gnarly and complex, but it's also pervasive. So any data set you would want to talk to, uh, you know, be it your data lake or, or SaaS apps or whatever, is probably going to use SQL. So it's good that that's the gold standard. If you're trying to build, you know, aggregate tables, or if you're trying to do uh, particular types of, maybe I want to see period over period metrics or things like that, these are fairly common patterns that can be rapidly accelerated using a language like LookML. There's one other thing which I didn't quite get to, which also falls out of uh, using the semantic layer approach versus doing raw SQL. So maybe I should get that to that in a second. Essentially, a simpler interface for writing, you know, potentially extremely complex uh, SQL. 
The other thing that's important to know there is um, we put an API on top of all of this. A developer could uh, use our API in lots of different ways, but they're essentially querying uh, a data set, a set of filters, uh, et cetera. And underneath the hood, Looker is taking the incoming data request, our understanding of the semantic layer, our understanding of where all of the data is living, the data lakes and all the other connectors, and we're figuring out the best possible queries to execute to pull that requested data set back, right? And that means that you can do some very interesting things. I don't know if you want to get into to detail on this specific Keep aspect. going, keep going. I'm listening. Okay, cool. I'm a data guy. Remember that. <laughs> I'm trying to be careful. I don't want to, sometimes I could get real deep in the rat hole. No, so, that's all right. Um, that's all right. We okay, like so I'll just add one other thing here. And what this means that if you use LookML to map out all of your data sets in, the, in this way and you use the APIs, you now have an API that has a governed layer to all of your business's data set. And you can do some really crazy things now. You can do some really cool stuff. One is business intelligence, of course, all right? So BI reports, dashboards, alerts, all of the stuff that you would traditionally see from a, a BI product is now possible. And with Looker, we've actually built a BI application on top of this, this API. But there's Stuff you can do that's even more exciting, you can go beyond dashboards because, again, you now have an API that knows where all of your operational data uh, stores are as well, not just the analytical stores. So you can start to build operational use cases or what we call data experiences. So these, they could look like a, a BI dashboard, but they could also look like any sort of experience that you uh, you could imagine where you're trying to build the best possible interface for an end user to accomplish some task with a business's data set. A couple quick examples might be a factory floor worker and you want to do a quick inventory lookup and a quick reorder. Like that is now all possible through APIs. Or you're a digital marketer and you're trying to manage the bids on particular keywords. Well, uh, what used to be a very manual process, like you know, downloading data from Facebook, Twitter ads platforms, merging them together and doing some analysis, that can now all be automated because you have an API that is connected to those data stores already. And not only is connected to them from a read perspective, but can also write back data. So you can now replace manual processes with operational business data-driven processes. One more step on the rat hole, because this is also really exciting for data engineers as well. The way Looker works, that semantic layer that I was just talking about, written in, in LookML, all of that code is checked into Git. So we're using software development uh, practices and applying them to data engineering. So like, think about your data as a product, or think about you know the same way you would ship production code. Think about taking those same sorts of software development lifecycle tactics and applying them to your data uh, data platform. So uh, unit tests, integration tests, monitoring and production, all applied to this, uh, this governed uh, semantic layer. And what that means is in the same way you can have hundreds or thousands of developers working on the same code base, you can now have hundreds or thousands of data engineers all working on the same semantic model across multiple departments. This unlocks incredible sorts of potential, like th things that were never really possible uh, with previous generations uh, of BI tools become possible. We can now corral the growing chaos being introduced by all these proliferation of new SaaS applications entering uh, the organization. We can take advantage of the fact that multiple departments are likely to have 
uh, specific data experiences and specific data needs that will be unique to within their specific organizations. And we can do all of this while being assured that the underlying data uh, remains you know, governed, well-permissioned, uh, trustworthy, so that you know uh, the sales department is always seeing the same view of business metrics as the finance department, which is to this day like a very hard problem to to solve. We now have come up with a new architecture which allows for this sort of consistency. Is there any AI or machine learning built into uh, the solutions you're talking about? We're a platform for building experiences. So going back to the example I was talking about earlier, that digital marketing example, uses a machine learning algorithm that runs every 15 minutes to first pull down the performance of click-through rates on Facebook and Twitter ads, pulls that down, feeds it into a model, uh, and then adjusts the bids and then writes that data back into Facebook and Twitter to adjust the bids. The way that we look at it is, the Looker API makes the data available, primarily for read cases, but also in some instances, uh, write cases. And then you pump that into all sorts of uh, different use cases. This may be intuitive, but why Google? Why is Google such a great match? I mean, there, there's a, a lot of reasons. I think um, I'll get the cultural one out of the way first. I mean, it turns out there's a lot of data nerds at <laughs> at Google, and there's a lot of data, data nerds at Looker. So we, there's an immediate cultural match. But from a, a product portfolio, there, there's two really interesting things. One is if you, if you look at the GCP offerings, uh, it's very clear that they had a gap in, in terms of their business intelligence uh, offering. So you know, a ton of great database, data transfer technologies, real-time stuff, but they didn't have a BI visualization or exploration layer. They also are extremely excited about this idea around the governed semantic model. So if we can figure out a way to have Looker's semantic layer show up in other GCP services, you know, all everything from being available to BigQuery so that, you know, we can optimize for better cash performance all the way up to maybe the semantic model shows up inside Google Sheets or something like that. But there's lots of places throughout the ecosystem where having this semantic layer will allow us to build really, really powerful products. So it's those two things. Anything that uh, we didn't say that you felt like, boy, I wish this question would have been asked or I need to get out. Uh, I want to make sure that I don't leave any stone unturned here. I think we talked a ton about uh, Looker. I, I would, um, for folks uh, who were interested in the earlier part of the conversation around equity inclusion and in technology, uh, I would encourage you to go to devcolor.org. Yes. Uh, I am a, a board member for, uh, for DevColor. It is by far the best organization within, you know, certainly the Bay Area doing amazing work to advance the careers of black uh, up and coming black rock stars technology so please go check that out i would imagine are there any podcasts any more uh, videos that you have there in terms of being able to advance your career oh yeah i've got a, a ton of stuff on nickcaldwell.com i try and post all of my educational videos there and if you would like to check out things i've written I've, i have a lot on medium uh, as well so here, here's what we always like to end with a quick game just to uh, get to know Nick, if you will. This one we're going to play is Would You Rather. It's based on your experience, and you got to pick one side or the other. It's not going to be easy, man. Okay. All right, I'm you ready? Okay. You, you, yeah. No, you're, you should. It's not, it's not that tough. Microsoft or Reddit? Oh, Reddit. That's easy. See, <laughs> but why is that? you got to give me one bullet. Oh. Just why. 
Consumer products. Consumer products. I like it. All right. East Coast or West Coast? West Coast. Sunlight. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good one, especially today. It was raining today here in Kansas City. All right. Competition or, or co-opetition? I am going to go with competition. I like to win. Yeah, but earlier you said that, hey, it was really important to get your customers. You embrace your partner, so to speak, right? Even even your enemy, so to speak. You can be friendly, egoless, but still competitive. All right, good, good one. <laughs> Data-based decision or intuitive-based decision? That's an easy one, I think. I am going to go with a data-informed decision. Is that an option? <laughs> data informed. That's data-based decision. I think that's good. That's I'll good. Go with that. Yeah. All right. AI or human decision? I'm going to go with, for now, human decision. For five years from now, I'll put a question mark. <laughs> All right. Very good. I'll go with that. They said privacy or freedom of speech. I'm going to go with um, privacy on this one. I, I spent a lot of time at Reddit thinking about the value of freedom of speech. It's a it's started as an open platform with a very, very strong ideal for freedom of speech. And I got to see lots of ways in which that unfortunately can lead to not seeing the best in people. I would bias more toward the uh, first option. Very good. You grew up on the East Coast, right? Yeah, yeah. Now your vote is West Coast? Oh, for sure. I mean, the, look, <laughs> there's lots of reasons. <laughs> You're not alienating your whole family with that, are you? We've had this conversation many times, and they understand that I'm going to get them to move out here someday. But the East Coast, growing up on the East Coast is great preparation for coming to the West Coast because <laughs> you can uh, kind of take some of the harder edges that you develop on the East Coast and bring them over here, and you'll look like a superhero when it comes to making decisions. So I've taken advantage of that. But the on the West Coast, you've got amazing technology companies, amazing you know cities like San Francisco, uh, LA, amazing sunlight. In the long run, I think the more relaxed way of life. Good answer. And yes, the sun is always helpful. It brightens your day. <laughs> exactly. Pun intended. Hey, uh, thank you, Nick, for being on. You're extremely knowledgeable. I could go on forever chatting with a data guy. And look, I really will try to get you back on if you're available, because uh, there's so many things that we didn't even get into. People don't realize how difficult it is to do a podcast, because once you get here, you know, you try to keep it in snippets that just it's not a full day thing. But then you get into a conversation with somebody as knowledgeable as yourself, and it's so hard to... There's so many other questions that just didn't get answered. So oh, I, I totally appreciate that. And yeah, I will happily come back. I mean, I've really enjoyed the conversation. So thanks a ton. Hey, thank you so much. And for you, you podcast listeners, thanks as always. We'd love to hear from you. AlMartinTalksData at gmail.com. Till next time, I'll see you on the podcast. Thanks for listening to the Making Data Simple podcast, where we make data fun. Be sure to visit ibmbigdatahub.com forward slash podcasts to access the show notes and uncover even more great episodes. Remember, the views expressed here are those of the host and its guests and do not necessarily represent the views of IBM. Until next time, let's go over and out. Oh.